Well, just as we just sang, that our our faith would be more than endless, and our belief would be more than just an academic statement. But our belief and our faith and our convictions would be something that people could see in our behavior. They would hear in the compassion of our voice. They would see. Faith is not purely an academic thing. It's a very tangible thing. It's a very recognizable thing. And oh God, when it's lived right, it's a very attractive thing. And we're drawn to it. Why do we live our lives in such a way that people would be drawn to the peace that they see in us? They would ask us the reason for this grace that they see. God, may we live our lives that way. So help us this morning to look at this great illustration of one of your children, a saint, in this case, a king, and he got really stupid. You were severe, and yet there's mercy. Amen. Always mercy, even in your severity. Help us to understand this great lesson you're giving us this morning. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Although he holds the office, his life would not speak of any substance. 
of, of intimacy or knowledge of God at all. It was a war with the Philistines or Philistines. Here from the beauty, say Philistines. Is it from the South or is it Philistine? And they're losing the battle. And Eli gets this brilliant idea. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. We'll drag it out into the battleground, which is very rebellious and and and, and defiant of God's holiness and, 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 and with everything wrong. We'll drag it out of here to encourage the troops and we'll beat the Philistines and 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 we'll win and it'll be great. Well they lost the battle and they lost the Ark of the Covenant. This is very symbolic on so many levels. In chapter 6, and he's troubled that we're worshiping, but we don't have the visual reminder that God is with us. I mean, we're worshiping, but, but it's just not right that the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that reminds us that we are a covenant people, and God has made promises, covenant to us, and even when we're unfaithful to keep covenant to Him, He remains faithful to keep His covenant promises to us. And we need to be reminded of that. So let's go get it. He found out where it was, he knew where it was, and they tried to move it, but they moved it the wrong way, and that didn't work. And now they try the second time to move it a beautiful way, and sure enough, they get there, and it is tremendous celebration. In fact, there's this passage of scripture that gets really debated in Christian circles. David is so happy, he's dancing with joy. And he's dancing so vigorously that his jacket falls off, and people say, Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. There's that scene in chapter 6. Chapter 7, David says, you know, I, I, we've been worshiping in the same tent since the days of Moses. We've been worshiping with, this was an old thing, and the tattered is worn, and our God is holy. Let's, let's build a temple. Let's, let's build this majestic structure. And God says, look, Great idea, but that's not my plan for you. God does not reject the idea of the temple. But he does say to David, he does say, look, I've got plans, and you're getting way ahead of me. You're not in charge here, David, I'm in charge. I am going to build a temple. But it's not going to be for you. I have plans for you, and you're accomplishing your plans. So you do what I've called you to do, but when you're gone, your son, your son will do it. And, and in verse 18 of chapter 7, when that becomes aware, David says, God, you're just too good to me. And that's my language, but that's what it says. I have, you just keep loving me like this. Oh my goodness, God, you're so faithful. I want you to see that in David. I want you to catch that heart. He's not mad. He says, oh, I, I want to build the temple. No, he, he sees God's plan. Chapter 8, they're back at war with Philistines. In fact, of all the enemies that come against Israel, the two they need to keep coming up a lot Philistines and the Ammonites. And they both are this kind of broad surveyor. Chapter 8, Philistines, David's courageous. 
chapter 9, the little crystals step away from the natural picture and, 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 and catch David's heart here. Saul's son, of course Saul was the king that God rejected and David replaced him, which didn't help the family dynamic at all. David's best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. And because Jonathan was loyal to the new king, the newly anointed, and was disloyal, at least in, in appearance, you're, you're, you're siding with him against me, and when you reject me, you would have been the next king. Jonathan knew, no, it, it doesn't work that way, Dad. God chooses the king. God has chosen David, and I see God in David. I'm going with David. Hope you don't hate me, Dad, but I'm going with David. Wow. They were the best of friends. Both their lives were under threat of the old king Saul. And they made this covenant agreement that should one of us die by persecution, or we should die in battle, then the, the surviving brother will raise the deceased family and care for their family. Okay, and they swore. Well, of course, Jonathan dies. The same day that his father Saul died. They died. And a few months have passed, maybe a year or more, and David says, I've got to keep my covenant promise to my deceased brother. And he finds a grandson named Mephibosheth. Everyone else lost their life and died. He finds this grandson and says, he goes to keep them out, and the grandson was crippled. It's a great story, and a lot of dysfunction, as you can only imagine. And David says, okay, you come live with me. And Mephibosheth says, I'm, I'm going to live with the king. He said, yes, because you're now my son. Jonathan would have done this for me, and I'm, I'm going to do this for him, for you. Yes. I just want you to catch David's part and see these things. Courageous, compassionate, faithful, worshiping. I want you to see all that. Finally, chapter 10. It's about the Ammonites. In fact, theologians call it the Ammonite Wars, and there are a few of them. In this particular scene, the king of the Ammonites has died and his son has taken the throne. And that son has been cooperative with David. They've been allies at various times. He says in his opening five or six verses of chapter 10, look to his staff. We're, we're going we're to be good. We're going to be cool with the Ammonites these days because they've been good with us. And he remembers his, his covenant. He's being loyal. And so he sent a delegation of, of troops to help him out. And to attend the, uh, the national funeral. And to support the new king. The death of his father. And taking, taking the throne of, of, of the Ammonite people. Well, the new king's advised him. You can't trust that guy. You can't trust that guy. He didn't send them here to support and to encourage and to say, we're standing with you. It's a trap. It's a trap. And the new king believed his advisors. And he captured that little company of men that David had sent. 
and they shaved half their beard and cut off all their garments at this. Which means we're horribly embarrassed. We shaved half our beard and we're walking home with no pants on. And word gets of this to David. And he doesn't go off and explode and say, That's it! He says, Well, first, let's take care of first things first. Where's the guy's walking home from from and he finds and says, Look, fellas, I am so sorry. Stay here till your beards grow back. We'll get you some clothes. Do you see the compassion for his people? But then he does the report with the animals. I just want you to just probably that five minutes of, of, of quick review of the heart and the behavior of this king. And now comes chapter 11. It is the darkest chapter of the soul. And I want you to think about your darkest chapter. And perhaps, I hope for you, your darkest chapter hasn't happened yet. And maybe it will be this dark. The chapter 11, verse 1 says this. It was the spring of the year. That's the time the kings go out to do battle. Now, let me just give you a little historical context here. Every nation is dispatching troops all the time. It, it wasn't a universal, readable rule. Only, we only fight in the spring. <laughs> troops are being dispatched and coming home and, and, and sent on mission all the time. But it was this generally understood practice in the springtime because the weather has broken. There aren't the same vulnerabilities that if you're going to attack, if you have any kind of, if you have any kind of the rules of warfare, you do it in the spring. And if you want to make a move against a, a neighboring nation, you would gather your troops and you would just sit and when word got back, oh, that they're, they're prepared for war, you either stay where you are and, and surrender or you'll send out your troops and this would take a few months. Just by the way, in fact, of what happened when we first met David. And it was the Philistines and Goliath. Last week. Last week for us. I don't think that was the news last week. <laughs> so it's the springtime. Here we go again. But David doesn't go. I don't want to spend about 35 minutes. I'm not going to. But I, we need to spend a lot of time here. I think verse 1 of chapter 11 is the opening of the door to everything else that flows from here. Now when you think about your darkest moments or maybe the darkest one and keep backtracking, backtracking, backtracking and, and where was it that you opened the door to what followed? And I've just not been there. And I have not just not been with them. And I have just listened to whoever. And I have just done this thing different than all the other residual stuff would never have occurred. It wouldn't have rolled out this way. But David didn't go. Maybe he's getting old and fat and lazy. Maybe he's getting full of himself. 
I am not only the king of Israel, we are the world power right now. I've got a good army. Joab's okay. He can handle this. I'm going to sit in my recliner. I'm going to go to my beach house. Or whatever we Americans would say. Going to the mountains. I'm buying a Corvette. I don't know what much what, you are. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm going to reward myself. He doesn't go. Same day would be seen in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This is a different guy. This is a fat, lazy. I am the king. And I want you to see what I get you. Yeah. I want you to see what I get you. He remains in Jerusalem, verse 2 says. I'm sorry, verse 1. Verse 1, and then verse 2. So he's there. One afternoon. And he gets up from his couch, recliner, TV with 50,000 channels. <laughs> Whatever your couch is going to do. And he's walking on the roof of his house. And he saw a woman taking a bed. What do you see from your, I'm good enough. I've put in my time. I deserve a break today. Attitude, sofa. Sailboat. What, what do you what do you see when you in fact look at look at the look at the uh, printed notes for you there? I gave you a little image, a little little image of what could be David looking out over his realm. When you look out over your life and your opportunities and all that the world beckons us. Look at this thing. Look at that woman. Look at their life. Look at that house. How come we don't go to Disney 13 times a year? <laughs> and we start comparing ourselves and looking at everyone else and what they've got and what we don't. Yeah. I need to get me some of that. And that's the beginning of, oh my Lord, where's this going to end? Verse 1, he did not go to meet this responsibility. I am the king. I am the commander-in-chief. And unlike in our day, the commander-in-chief took up the sword and he went to battle. And by neglecting responsibilities, he puts an anchor around his neck that he almost gets drowned by. I want you to see you. The statement life, the most delightful life. It may feel like the hardest one, but it's the life that bears fruit for eternity. The life that in your sober moments you want is the life of responsibility. It's in neglecting the attitudes and the behaviors of chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. The gifts to him in chapter 11 is not my one. And in his laziness and his idleness, he gets in some deep trouble. Yeah. I 
Have you ever tried to create your alternative explanation for what's going on in your life? Was it me when your dad came home and had before him? And we try to create this other explanation, this other, oh, it's not me, look over there. And, and again, see the hand of God. When Uriah comes home, this soldier is so faithful to his king that he says, oh, I, 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 we're supposed to be at war. How can I go and be with my wife and take a few days off and, and be with my wife when, when I, should, I should be at war? And the question quickly comes, yeah, David, how can a man do that when I should be at war? And I'm not with my wife, I'm with your wife. Now, at this point of the sermon, we, we typically check out because, well, I've, I've never been with another person's spouse, man or woman, and, and, and so that, that's not my sin, so I'm going to take a break today, wake me up when she's done. Do you think adultery is the only way that we try to take control and run our life and, and indulge ourselves? And, and what? This, this could be a limitless illustration of the same principle and attitude. That while my responsibility should be there, I've abandoned my responsibilities and I got caught up here. And now that's why I'm in this big trouble. Because I know I should have been there. And our responsibilities as Christians are what? I don't love the Lord thy God, boy, your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. We don't love our neighbors ourselves. We love Ourselves. We love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And so we start buying stuff. And we buy more stuff. And that stuff is not enough stuff. We get more stuff. And then we're in debt. And we're, God, I, I'm in debt. I, I can't tithe. I can't, I can't do this because I'm in debt. Because you did that. We, we don't love our neighbors. We don't fight our flesh. I'm not at war with my neighbors, but I am at war with my own flesh. My spirit is saying, love God, serve God, obey God, sing to God. My flesh is saying, I love God enough. I need a sailboat. <laughs> you don't think my flesh screams that to me every year? So what's your sin? Who's your woman? Gosh, I'm a woman man. I'm glad. But metaphorically speaking, metaphorically speaking, are you pursuing that has nothing to do? Has nothing to do with the goodness and the glory of God. And we pursue those things only because I can. And everyone else is doing that. I could just keep my mind and my nose fixed to the grindstone, as they say. Don't neglect your responsibilities. Okay, I, I gotta put that in there. Chapter 11 ends, paragraph beginning in verse 14. So when Uriah, verses 6 through 13, when Uriah wouldn't fall into David's trap to cover himself. And he's, he just will not 
go in, he's sweeping down the front steps of the house. Just imagine, David's up in the, in, in the palace. He knows what he's done with Uriah's wife. He brings Uriah home. Uriah won't even sleep with his wife. He's out on the step. Boy, is God all over David right now. You think you're going to outsmart God and cover yourself? You will not. You will not. I love this problem. That when we confess our sin, we don't get despised, we get mercy. If you confess your sin, you get mercy. But if you cover your sin, if you cover your sin, you get wrath. So we don't confess to them because we think, I'm going to get humiliation, I'm, I'm going to get uh, ostracized, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my job, my wife will leave me, my kids will hate me. Well, that's what our logic says, because that's the way the world works. But in God's economy, in God's world, and in, in, in God's structure, no, no. When we confess, he puts in the hearts of other people to forgive us. If we confess our sins, we get mercy. Cover your sin. You get ruined. God helps to make a Bible more than our own church. Something has happened from the end of chapter 10 and the opening of chapter 11 that David got really stupid, really quick. And you know what that feels like, don't you? Not one of us in the room said that. If I got my own story, God forgive me, I got a bunch of stories like that. So now that Uriah will take the bait, David sends him back to the front lines with a note. Give this to Joab. Uriah doesn't read the note. This is a faithful guy. And David's a bump right now. Right now. It's one of the worst. Uriah doesn't even read the note. He gives it to Joab. And the note says, Put Joab in front lines, back off, and let him die. I tried, and David would be at this point, this is why I think it's really stupid. Like, well, I, I, it's really, this is really Uriah's fault. He could have lived and had a son, and nothing would have been, and everything would have been great. And, no! It's the boy scout, and we start mocking the guy who's faithful. That's how wicked we can become in our reasoning. And then, unless you haven't caught my real heart here, this is the American way. So you lie and die. You lie and die. Chapter 12, the prophet Nathan. If you want to listen to the very beginning of our time of worship, we read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is what David wrote. Prayed, said, right after the first few verses of chapter 12. Psalm 51 was written in the middle of what we here call 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here's what happens now. David the prophet goes to the king and says, I got this prompting from the Lord to tell you this story. Okay, tell me a good story. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. Rich man had acres and acres and acres, fields and fields, and flocks and flocks. 
and a little prophet, and a little field, and one little lamb, one little lamb that they looked like they probably not even want to show it needed. It was like a pet. It was like, a, a, you know, a, a pet. So the rich man had this banquet, and this guy, this visitor came, and he wanted to put in a big show, and blah, 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 blah. So do you think he takes one of his little lambs? No, no. He sneaks down to his neighbor who's got one little lamb. He steals that lamb, takes it back to Florida to be his dad. When David tells this simple, little, but profoundly clear story, David goes off. Hey, this is you. They don't have enough rope, they'll hang himself. Verse 5 and 6. David explodes. He is angry. How many times have I reminded all of us about the end of, uh, is it end of Romans chapter 1 or chapter 2? End of the end of chapter 1. The thing we hate is the thing we don't hate. <laughs> you catch yourself being really angry about something? Find a mirror. <laughs> Find a mirror quickly. The thing we hate is the thing we're guilty of. If not in precise practice, at least in principle. David goes off in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. He is raging. This is wrong! This is wrong! And I tell you what's going to happen. I tell you what's going to happen. He's going to die. We're going to put him to death. And then from his estate, he's going to restore back to the poor family four times what he took. Then Nathan says, well, aren't you so righteous? I'm talking about you! <laughs> Don't you just love slash hate it when the Holy Spirit talks to you the way the prophet spoke to David? And I have had the Holy Spirit say to me, you lousy Christian. Now, I don't think God used that language, but I hear that language. God speaks to me in my kind of language. That's what I think. That's what I feel. That's what. Who are you? I'm talking about you, David McMurray. I'm talking about you. We look at them. We look at that. We look at this. We look at that. Whether it's political or moral or ethics or or any kind of value issue. What's wrong with them? Those people, those people, those people doing that wrong. Someone should tell me. I'll tell them what they do. You think you're innocent in any of these categories you're upset about? You're not innocent. Verse 7. You are the man. No, good man. No, no. You're the one. You're the wicked guy in the story. Uriah's dead. Talking about you. You thief. You adulterer. You robber. Selfish, greedy. Self-righteous. You gotta read verse 8 and 9. Actually, read them with me. Chapter 12. Halfway through verse 7. In the middle of verse 7. I anointed you, king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. 
I gave you your master's house. Your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add you as much as more. So before we get all wonderful, God was being kind of harsh and, and cruel. Harsh and cruel? Verse 8 and 9. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I, I'm, I'm really, it's, it's getting harder and harder and harder for me in our culture to, to respond to people with, 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 without just going off like I seem to be going off this morning. It's getting harder for me not to do that when people say, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe in God. They can't be God. There's so much evil in the world. And you relate all of that with God's speak? Really? Now maybe David's thinking, God could have stopped all this. She didn't have to consider me. God could have, why did God do this? Why did God do this to you, David? Did angels come and, and pick you up and force you down the steps of her house? We're trying to blame God for all our mistakes and take credit for all of his, his, his work that's good in us. And so the prophet says, none of this is traceable to God. God did this for you, and this for you, and this for you, and this for you. And notice what happened if you'd just been responsible to be the other. But you weren't. And now you're trying to cover up everything and save your lousy behind. Can't say that in full day. Here's the consequence. 10, 11, 12. You use the sword to kill Uriah. David, I'm going to let the sword touch your family. You did evil to that man's house. I'm going to let evil come to your house. I'm, I'm going to let you taste all the water that you made him drink. And it's even more severe. The son that was conceived is going to die. And then he uses this adverb, which maybe will get our attention more than any of the rest. You did all this secretly. Right now, many people know it's me and you and 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 Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba. You did this secretly, not David. All this going to happen to your children and your house is going to be done over. It's going to be done over. Now we're at a crucial moment in the story. This is a crucial moment in, in, in understanding the principles of Scripture. It's at this moment we think, oh my goodness, that's why my kids, that's why this, that's why that God getting even with me. God's not getting even with us. If God wanted to get even, we would all be dead, burning in hell right now. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to catch verse 13. You've got to catch verse 13. Chapter 12 and verse 13 reads this. David says to Nathan, I have sinned 
I have sinned against the Lord. And David said back to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. There's a difference between paying for our sins and seeing the consequence of our sin. There's a huge difference, not only practically in, in, in life, but theologically in the heart of God, the way he does sin. If I had to pay for my sins, I would be burning in hell right now. The soul that sins shall die. And if we die apart from the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, paying for our sins, if, if I reject the payment of Jesus, and I'll, 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 I'll live my own life, and I'll stand before God for myself, okay. You want to pay for your own sin? That's the payment. That's the payment. We don't, if you're born again, you don't pay for your sin. If you know Christ, I don't just mean you're religious, you go to some kind of Christian church, and there's a million of them. But I mean, you, you know who Jesus is, and you've embraced him, not just as a historical figure, but my Redeemer, my Savior. He paid for my sins. He paid for David's murder. Jesus paid for David's murder. Jesus paid for David's adultery. Yeah. We don't pay for our sin. Yeah. If you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you'll be paying for your sins for eternity. Yeah. We don't pay for our sin. If you know Jesus. We do have to have the consequences of our sin. Because we're only in souls. Now thank God we don't reap it as severely as what we sow. It's not even proportional. I've sinned a lot, and I've had a few consequences. I want you to catch verse 13. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he cleanses us from all of our iniquities. If the tech away, if there's any kind of Greek, if you're looking for a sound by anywhere in this hour, it's, it's, it's something like this. We sin a lot. And God forgives and restores a lot more. Thank you, Lord. But it's all traceable to if it had just been with the soldiers, he wouldn't have seen her. He wouldn't have said, I'm going to talk to her. And talking became something else. Then, then it was, let's cover up. Well, it won't cover up, so I'm going to have to kill him. Look at this unbelievable sequence. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've sat with parents and said, because they're like, my kids, my kids, my kids. Okay, what's what? Well, they, they had these friends. Well, I can't tell you how much that was a couple. It's pretty much like this story. Well, I, I went to this bachelor party, and this happened, this happened, this happened. Next thing you know, and my dad used to say, "Cut." 
Not much good the whole world happens after 10 o'clock at night. That should be all the <laughs> Not much good happens after 10 o'clock at night. Let's see the alarm line moves at the 12 o'clock. <laughs> and not much good going on out there. What are you doing that's putting yourself at risk? What are you, what are you doing right now? In your life. Right now. What are you doing right now? That you, you, you know already. This, this, this might maybe across some kind of line. What habit? What value? What, what ambition? What relationship? What is it in your life? There's probably more than one that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting scared that I won't be able to manage this well. Sooner or later, this will get me. If it had just been responsible. Yeah. Now, here's how crazy we become in our culture. Well, we're responsible. We use, we use, uh, what's the pastoral word I can say right now? We, we use uh, protection, our children, our daughters, and we pregnant. Uh, let me tell you something. If God can create the world in seven days, raise the dead, ain't no big deal for God to work around prophylactics. <laughs> or birth control. Ain't no big deal for God. Ain't no big deal for God to do stuff like that. You may think you've got your own your basic number. So I can live a double life. I can ride and worship God on Sunday. I can cheat on the job and People think I'm faithful at church. I just don't know. Cover up as long as you want. But at some point, God will say, you know what? You're misrepresenting me so badly. That everyone thinks you're this great, wonderful king. And I'm the one that made you great. I'm not going to keep doing this. And he will expose us. He will expose us. even it took the hand of God to expose us. If we would then, even then, at that late point, Uriah's dead. There's a child in play now. One child is already done. Solomon comes later with Bathsheba. There's life after horrible failure. And still he forgives. David's heart was broken. We read Psalm 51. If you all hear this one here, read it on your own time this afternoon. There's mercy even in the midst of his chastisement. There's mercy even in our chastisement. Is it any wonder we don't love this story? Because it says to us on my worst day, I'm so ashamed of myself that there is hope. Oh my goodness. I thought I'd just keep living and we'll we'll just keep running the cycle over and over and over and over and over. I can't can't keep sinning against a God who loves me like this. Let me give you one more application of this great story that really has nothing to do with, with, with Bathsheba and Uriah at all. It, it has to do with God keeping his promises. I made reference to you in this kind of introduction working up to chapter 11 
It was back in chapter 7 that David said, I, I, I want to build the temple. I want to build the temple. And God says, not for you to build the temple. That's for your son Solomon, who was not yet even conceived. In fact, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm probably shouldn't say this, I'm not even sure. Well, it was it, in chapter 6 that Sheba was not David's wife. <laughs> so when God says, when God says to David in chapter 6, your son, and we know that son Solomon, will be the one who builds the temple. Solomon's mother wasn't even in David's life in chapter 6. So you want to see the intricacies of God's ways? You want to see the, the convoluted methods of God? You, you, you want to see God when I can't figure it out? Well, that's the point. If I could figure out God, I would be God. I'm not. Not on my best day. None of us ever will be. Not even in heaven. We will be perfected humans, but we will not be gods. And so God is keeping his covenant to Abraham. Abraham, your descendants. That's why Saul's out, that's true. And David's in. Because I'm keeping my covenant to you, Abraham. That from your descendants, a Messiah will ultimately come. And to keep his promise, he works around murder, he works around adultery, he works around warfare, he works around heaven. God is keeping his promise that the Messiah will come. And he will save us from our sin. And we get in the way and we mess it up. God straightens the path. And then we pull it way out of out of focus and, and, and God restores it. And he just keeps restoring and keeps restoring. And here we are this morning. A congregation of restored or being restored people. God saying, I can work even through you. Now there's two ways to respond. There's a deal. I can have my sinful cake and still go to heaven when I die. Hallelujah. But the problem with that kind of reasoning is true Christians begin to really love righteousness. Because when the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is if you think he's righteous, when the Spirit of God comes to us, that that double life that we've all we thought we would love. We get away with stuff. We start to gradually feel, yeah, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Not because, oh, it's a church, we can't, can't do that. And those churches exist. I was raised in one. I, I was much more aware of what I could not do. I wasn't quite sure what I could do. But the Holy Spirit gets us past that, and, and we start to realize, no, it's crazy enough, it's crazy. I'm, I'm at my most peaceful, I'm at my most happiest when I'm being righteous, when I'm walking with Christ, when I'm in step with Him. That's when I'm my most content, that's when I, that's when the life is best for me, when I'm walking with Jesus. Amen. It's not because I have to, no, I have to get up. No, it's, 
for all the Bathsheba things, men, women, stuff. That's the book. And if I get myself so focused on Christ, it's not that I never watch TV, I never look to a long game, I'm just at home and quote scripture all day. Oh! No, I, I, I don't recommend you live that kind of life. The apostles didn't live that kind of life, and Jesus was with them. But when they went about their daily routine of doing stuff, and, and, and laughing, and, inter and interacting with people, and in and, and, and worship services, and, and, and the, the fullness of life, it was always in their thinking. Oh, this moment right now makes me think of this verse. And, and this decision I've got to make is making me think of this verse. But there's always this, this consciousness that I'm always on task, that I'm always in my responsibilities. This is what God is doing to me these days. This is what God is doing to me. This is how God is reading me these days. Being away from that leads me to that. When we stop with that kind of consciousness, that kind of awareness, that kind of, of tether that I'm, I'm, I'm attached to Christ, and, and, and I go here, I go there, I go here, I go there, but I'm, I've never broken that, that attachment. I'm tethered. When an opportunity comes in the beginning, it doesn't look wicked at all. It looks innocent. And we start pulling on the tether. And we get in deep, way too fast than we thought we ever would. Come on, church. If you know Jesus, you're born of His Spirit. Be honest with yourself. What am I looking at? What is there in my life right now that's in the way of intimacy and greater productivity for the kingdom of God? Talk about increasing your tithing to the church. That's what I mean, please. But that's not the only way that we live out this relationship with the living God. The Lord, you're not going to heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor even as much as you love yourself. Jesus said, No, love as much as I love you. That's enough responsibility to keep me occupied for the rest of my life. If I can focus on my responsibilities, what, what, what does it mean to know the joy and live out the joy so other people can see the joy of being Christian? So I don't listen to views and notes. It's attitude, it's selflessness. It's, it's no, I love giving more than, than receiving. Who that's there? Yes, I love giving more than receiving. Please stay focused on those responsibilities and all these things that we see in the world. They wouldn't have the same vitalness, the same magnetism. and the girls and other family, they, they, they love Disney, they love Disney, and they'll drag me off to Disney, and I see all the glitter of Disney, we'll drive to the neighborhood, look at that house, look at that house, and I always say, whether we're in Disney, or in Padfield, or wherever we are, 
You know what? I, I know this just perfect, gorgeous little house from 899 North Shore. I love it. Right? That's the place God has given to Amen. And God doesn't give us joy. I'm not saying it's wrong to change a job. I'm not saying it's wrong to, 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 to change your house. I'm saying you start doing that because that will make you happy. You're in trouble. That's when you're in trouble. It's a bad sheep. You'll catch yourself lying, stealing, and if not actually murdering someone, he'll be covered to assassination just to do it. And that's what we saw in David. This great king who remains a great king with this huge black spot in his life. Help us, God, to run from him and to avoid these marks of self. I want people to see the marks of Christ on me. I don't want them to see the marks of David. That doesn't mean I cover them up. But they're there, and when people say, hey, you, they're like, well, I got stupid. Let me tell you how I got stupid. I'll tell that shameful story. And I'll end with saying, but God forgave you for that. God forgives you for that? Yes. Yes. God forgives. And the verse says, that he remembers our sin no more. Now, he remembers our sin. Now, there's nothing wrong with God doing with us. But the verse means that he will never bring it up to you again. He will never rub it in your face. David has some great days after this chapter. And when he's rejoicing in those great moments, God says, yeah, 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 but you and I both know that, Jesus. God never does that to us. He never does that to us. I want to serve God like that. I want to walk with God like that. How can I keep serving? Thanks to God. Second.